Good afternoon, I'm Al Cresta. The work of the new evangelization uh, must continue. It's been started, but it's got a long way to go yet. One of the things that's new about the new evangelization is uh, who it's intended to reach. It's intended to reach the baptized. What's the role of the diaconate in all of this? Well, join me right now to help us understand that is Deacon uh, Stephen Hilker. Uh, Steve's been serving at St. Mary Catholic Church in Williamston, Michigan. Uh, after 37 years working for the state of Michigan in various executive positions, he retired and answered the call to serve the church as a deacon on June 30th of 1990. He then uh, has been serving in the Diocese of Lansing. He was ordained under the late Bishop uh, Kenneth Pavish. And he and his wife, Nancy, have nine children. And it's good to see you. We've probably known each other since the 1970s. Yes. It's been a long time. (laughs) We haven't been in touch all those years, but uh, let me ask you, what's been going on? Tell me a little bit about what you've been doing. Well, uh, I've been a member of the Work of Christ community since 72. Um, Married uh, Nancy McDonald. We had nine children. Uh, I uh, had a 37-year career with the state with uh, various executive positions in, in uh, budget, finance, uh, about 16 years in social services, uh, treasury, and then I, uh, my last uh, job was as the uh, uh, chief deputy for uh, the Department of Insurance and Financial Services. Uh, so I've been kind of around the block yeah, on that. Yeah. Uh, then uh, when... Uh, uh, Father Mark Rutherford arrived at uh, at St. Mary's. He uh, he nabbed me on his second day and said, "You know, I've been praying about this. You know, how about you take over administration for the parish and I'll have more time to pastor?" And I said, "Oh, fine. I'll I'll give you twenty hours a week." And <laughs> been doing that ever since. So that's wow. Uh, that's uh, about seven years there now. Oh, I remember uh, Father Mark when he was just a little boy. Yes, he, yeah. in some ways he still is. <laughs> <laughs> We miss him greatly. Yeah. He's a marvelous priest, just yep. on fire. Yes, that's uh, that's what I hear. Now, I, I came across your thinking on this in an article in uh, Homiletic and Pastoral Review uh, on the website there, Deacons as Apostles for the New Evangelization. Uh, what was the reason for writing the article? Well, first it started out as a thesis. I was finishing a uh, master's in pastoral studies at the Josephinum in uh, Columbus, Ohio, and I had to write a thesis. And I was going to write on deacons in preaching. And pretty soon I felt some nudging from the Holy Spirit, and I was reading more and more about deacons in the new evangelization. Yeah. But it was all writing. Nothing, nothing had been really done that I could tell. I was particularly struck by the comments of the uh, good Cardinal uh, Francis George uh, from Chicago, who on the 10th anniversary was basically bemoaning the fact that the new evangelization hadn't taken off. Uh, Here it was uh, 2001. The plan hadn't been implemented. And uh, the quote from his, we're still only beginning to implement it in our parishes and dioceses. And I, I could feel what he must have felt at, yeah. at, at that moment. Then um, I remember uh, Sherry Waddell wrote her book, Forming Intentional Disciples, in 2012. Yeah, that was and an it, eye-opener. Yeah, at that point, only 30% of the baptized Catholics were attending Mass even once a month. And after that, in 2019, Pew Research said that the uh, decline of Christianity in the U.S. continues at a rapid pace. Mm-hmm. There's a brand-new book out from uh, Brandon Voigt, who uh, works with uh, Word on Fire Ministries, 
He says that 50% of young Americans raised as Catholics no longer even identify themselves as Catholics. And uh, Notre Dame did a study that found that just 7% of young people raised in the church still actively practice their faith, being, you know, weekly mass, prayer, and counting faith is important to them. Well, that means among young people raised Catholic, the church is nearly 93% dead. Hmm. It's it's a terrible uh, statistic. So between the... uh, Pew Research uh, and the Diocese of Springfield studies, there's two main reasons uh, that young people are are leaving the church. One, a large percentage are simply drifting away from religion, and the other is specific spiritual theological reasons. Mm-hmm. And the uh, Diocese of Trenton study in 2012 you know, found, found similar reasons. I recently came across an absolutely amazing yep. uh, book that I really would count as the second on the must-read list right after Ralph Martin's book. Yep. This is a great one. Yeah, From yeah. Christendom to Apostolic Mission. Yeah. And uh, Monsignor Shea out of the University of Mary in, uh, in North Dakota wrote this. And uh, right now our uh, leadership team at St. Mary's Williamston is, is studying this. And Shea's book reminded me of something that uh, a well-known sociologist, Peter Berger, called the sacred canopy, mm-hmm. or the overall mm-hmm. vision of society and individuals adopt, and that uh, it is that view, that view of the sacred, that view of the whole world, yeah. that really impacts people. So until uh, uh, recent times, our culture's common vision was rooted in the gospel. And uh, our pastor recently gave a homily that he used some of this. He said the uh, the established common vision was grounded in the fact that Jesus is God and came to save us. Not everyone practiced Christianity or right. did it well, mm. but it was the general vision for action. In many of our lifetimes, this has quickly flipped around. The common vision has been replaced. Right. What was once predominantly a Christian vision now is decisively not a Christian yeah. vision. It's I, now quite different. I remember when um, uh, Richard John Newhouse, before he became father of Richard John Newhouse, in his book Naked Public Square, he pointed out uh, that every major uh, social reform in American history uh, was always argued about and fought over in terms of God, Scripture, the Church. And so these... Uh, this is the church and religion were the carriers of social reform uh, that we may be at a place where that's no longer the case given the uh, the redefinition of marriage and the activism that was you know involved there so yeah things have things seem different as Ralph Martin is famous for saying the church is weak divided and confused yeah but now Rather than just that, we have a society that's increasingly hostile to and what contradicts the pursuit of uh, of radical individualism. That yeah. radical individualism uh, has replaced much of the uh, the pursuit of morality. Mm-hmm. So the, the common morality really has bits of the gospel core in it, but now uses them to justify things that are totally contrary to gospel morality. We now face a culture that can no longer be trusted to guide our action, raise our children, right. or direct us to God. We're doing it on our own. 
Yes. Yeah, we have to build our own community to reinforce it. So we need to intentionally choose and foster what kind of, of culture we're going to have. Uh, everyone follows a shared vision. That's not a choice uh, for some. That that where there's a when society provides the vision, most people just drift along with it. Uh, again, yeah. I, I remember uh, years ago hearing that men and women will always choose to worship something, okay? Right. Whether right. intentional or not. If they intentionally choose to worship the Lord, then they will do that. But if they don't, they will worship something else. Yeah. So There's what, some ultimate ultimate concern they have, yeah. Mm-hmm. So the uh, but the gospel is is powerful. It's effective in its ability to transform lives if we allow it, and it alone will bring true joy to, mm-hmm. to mankind. Yeah. So the the problem that we face in the church, one of the big ones, is that in a post Christendom culture, this mm-hmm. is no longer a culture where where it's driven uh, by belief in Christ and, and Scripture. What happens is in a uh, post-Christian culture, the tools that priests and bishops and workers in the, in the parishes have used in the past don't work, okay? That, right. uh, you know, the, one of the, the strongest comments I remember is uh, from uh, Father Mallory, who uh, wrote Divine Revelation, who states that most pastors simply manage the decline of their parishes. That's right. Yeah, and a friend of mine who's a bishop said that very thing mm-hmm. when I asked him, "What's it like being a bishop now?" He says, "Well, I spend a lot of my time managing decline." That is not what Christ called bishops no, to, no. and he knew that, <laughs> so it, it was of great concern to him. Now, Al, as, as you pointed out in a document on your website that I actually used in uh, uh, in my thesis. It had nearly a hundred quotations from popes and synods about the necessity of personal encounters where people experience the Lord Jesus, and that those are crucial yeah. for conversion and perseverance in the in the Christian life. Uh, the uh, you know, as I mentioned, you know, our parish is using divine revelation, divine renovation, for parish renewal, along with Life in the Spirit seminars and Alpha, and I'm not just pushing a couple of of programs here because one of the things that's very clear is each parish needs to very, very prayerfully discern, you know, what the Lord is calling them to and how to renew and steer the the parish. There's no one size fits all here. Exactly. But the Holy Spirit has a right size for every parish. Amen. The, uh, you know, one of the... uh, Difficulties that uh, Monsignor Shea points out is that in the space of one generation, the bottom of the Christendom culture fell out. Almost overnight, societies went from being strongly Catholic to aggressively secular, such as in Ireland where you have people dancing in the streets celebrating abortion. One reason for the rapid collapse was that the overall vision for society had been changing over a course of, of time. Yes, that's true. But the change wasn't perceived. Right, right. So rather than adjust to that, the institutions of the church continued as they always had with a business-as-usual approach. Absolutely, yeah. 
At a certain point, the eroding Christian vision could no longer bear the weight of the culture. The house collapsed, and great was its fall, says the Monsignor. Now, these are admittedly complex situations, but they point to a working principle. Institutional and ecclesiastical strategies that are suited to Christendom do not work in an apostolic setting. Well, what's an apostolic setting? It's very clear that we are in a new environment that resembles much more the first century church than it does the uh, 19th or or 20th century. Christianity arose at a time when Israel, God's chosen people, were surrounded by a sophisticated Hellenistic culture with a strong ruling vision of their own. And during the first three centuries, the Christian church was, to one degree or another, in conflict with its surroundings, which we're seeing now more and more and more. During this time, the church functioned in an apostolic mode. She needed to articulate and maintain a distinct and contrasting vision, a whole different way of life than the pagan way of life. You know, one way, one thing that uh, has been pointed out by uh, historians of Christianity, uh, one of those things in which the church was quite different than the surrounding culture was in its view of chastity. Uh, And one of the reasons the early church appealed to women was because it was one of the few places in the culture where they could go and not expect to be pawed, you know. Mm -hmm. Uh, We'll come back on the other side of the break, uh, Steve, and continue on. My guest is uh, Deacon uh, Stephen Hilker. We are looking at this shift from uh, Christendom to a new apostolic era, and we're getting to the role of the diaconate in the new evangelization. We'll be right back. I'm here with Deacon uh, Stephen Hilker, looking at the new evangelization, and first of all, getting a view of what's happened in our culture, the world in which we um, carry out mission. What's happened? Well, one thing that's happened is the collapse of Christendom. Uh, We can no longer count on the society surrounding us to reinforce or hold up or give sanction to um, some of the most basic uh, rules by which we live. Uh, so we have to uh, really create our own individual communities uh, that will help us, and our churches are those communities, where they reaffirm the Christian story, where they reaffirm uh, the commandments of God, where they reaffirm the creed, uh, where they reaffirm a vision of what it means to be human. Uh, we, are, we are in conflict with uh, no matter how much we wish it wasn't the case, we are in conflict with the surrounding culture. And so we have to learn how best to fight this fight of the kingdom. And uh, Deacon Steve was going over that setting in which uh, this takes place, talking about, uh, you were quoting here from, um, uh, oh, I'm trying to see. From uh, Father Mallory, I guess, or Monsignor Shea. Monsignor Shea. Yeah. that uh, in the space of one generation, uh, the bottom of the Christendom culture fell out. Almost overnight, societies went from being strongly Catholic to aggressively secular, 
Now, Ireland's a perfect example of this. Um, what's happened is that the overarching vision of the society has changed, uh, while the church, is, of course, has maintained its own kingdom vision. And so we've come more and more into conflict. Um, and we're having to figure out a new way of engaging this culture. We can no longer count on the kind of compatibilities that existed before this collapse. Um, and you were, you were beginning to talk about this apost- how the church functions in this apostolic mode. Uh, what we need to do uh, here is, uh, I, I assume, is begin to get a clear vision of what the church is. Yes, we need it just like the early church, we need a distinct and contrasting vision that's different than that of the culture that surrounds us now. Uh, those who were brought into the church in the apostolic age did uh, a lot more than just embrace a set of moral principles and right. doctrinal statements. Right. There was a need for a profound conversion of mind and imagination. Every thought captive to Christ, St. Paul puts it. Exactly. Yeah. And St. Paul's a wonderful example. Uh, Peter Berger uses St. Paul as an example of what he calls alternation, which is that switch into that uh, different worldview. In St. Paul's case, he went converted from being a Christ hater to a missionary disciple. Right. That was pretty right. dramatic. Yeah. Uh, as uh, most of my experience with the with the state, my, my MBA was organizational development. I, uh, I had a number of executive positions, but I also seemed to always get uh, tagged with a major project wherever <laughs> I went. And so one of the things I had to do was identify what the resources were for how we were going to get this done. You know, what's the, what's the budget? What's the, the uh, manpower that, that we need? Well, as I looked at this, problem of the new evangelization and then the fact that it didn't go get off the ground too well, I saw that with the growing shortage of priests, but in contrast to that, an ever-increasing number of permanent deacons, deacons really compose one of the few available pools of human resources to teach and leverage expansion of the new evangelization among the laity and so impact those you know, who are, you know, former Catholics or the burgeoning number of those who identify the nuns with, with no religion at all. Mm-hmm. Um, Pope Emeritus uh, Benedict wrote, there is no greater priority than this to enable the people of our time once more to encounter God. Yeah. Well, data on the deacons in the United States from Kara uh, uh, shows rapid growth from... 898 deacons ordained in 1975 to a projected 20,000 deacons this in, is, in the U.S. That's a huge area of growth for the church. Yes. It, it, and it's a growth in ordained uh, men, and of course their wives, who are, most places are very serious about uh, having wives being partners in the diaconate. So. Right. In most places, wives are encouraged to attend as many of the classes as, as yeah. they can attend with yeah. the deacons. And they form a natural evangelistic team. I mean, being a, a, a married couple and, yep. and uh, sharing this, the same perspectives on the, on the Lord. So the other advantage for deacons is that the majority of their time is spent in the marketplace or the community. These environments really need a herald of the gospel uh, deacons have been trained reasonably well in Scripture. There's mm-hmm. some dioceses that are better than others, guess. sure, yeah. Uh, yes. So they know Scripture. They understand preaching and prayer. 
but the, many are not yet fully acquainted with listening to the Holy Spirit and then using the gifts of that same Spirit in the practice of evangelization techniques. They need training in practical aspects of, of evangelization. Uh, and so my big question throughout the, uh, the paper and my thesis was what impact could 39,000 trained deacons and wives have on our society? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but before we can envision what deacons could do, we have to first deal with what's called the servant myth. Yeah, and what, what is that? That goes back to a detailed uh, word study that uh, Collins did probably 10 years ago called Diaconia. And what he did is he took all of the, the first century literature where the word... Uh, deacon appeared and analyzed it in detail and what he found was that there's a real misunderstanding in the church today about what deacons are. They are not wait staff. They are also not to be the only social justice arm of the church ministering to people's physical needs alone. A um, uh, deacon from Australia who's written a great deal, Deacon Anthony Gooley, clarifies the erroneous interpretation of Acts 6. Because um, that's where this is from. That's the great diaconate passage. It's the great it's, diaconate yeah. passage where where uh, Bible translators have entered one of two words that don't exist in the Greek. Interesting. Which is on the daily distribution. Some have said, you know, of money. Some have said of food. Neither word is there. Um Guli hmm. clarifies that the Hellenistic uh, Greek widows uh, were neglected in the daily administration of the word really? because of their situation. The apostles were Aramaic speakers, okay? Yeah. So they preached mostly in the, the temple forecourt, and they couldn't minister to Greek speakers, you know, if the Greeks, you know, tried to show up. They wouldn't understand because they speak Greek. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah. And then, secondly, uh, the uh, the phrase, you know, uh, at tables, as the the Greek expresses it, really means in their homes. So the apostles asked the community to identify seven Greek speakers to carry out the ministry of the word on their behalf. Wow. Contrary to serving in a physical sense. The deacon's primary role from the beginning had been to catechize and evangelize and serve the church in a spiritual sense. Sadly, data from 2017 from Kara shows that only a quarter of deacons, 25%, say that they are engaged in evangelization at least once a week. Hmm. So they're spending their time in liturgy, they're spending their time in, in homilies, but not in evangelization. The basic norms for the formation of permanent deacons uh, and the uh, directory for the ministry of life of permanent deacons, known as the directory, are really the, the guidance on how deacon programs are to be run and what deacons are to do. There's over 40 references in that official document to evangelization. Hmm. But since its publication in 1998... The numbers of practicing Catholics has continued to drop. It seems that the role of deacons in the new evangelization yeah. has truly not been been realized. Yeah. yeah, and I think it's due to the fact that they don't have the training or receive a mandate from their bishops. 
deacons are famous for the when a bishop asks the deacon to do something. You know, if the bishop says jump, the deacon says how high. Yeah, basically they're held. They they they're whatever needs to be done, toss it to the deacon. I mean, that's the way yes. it seems to function. That's, you know. Yeah, deacons are definitely utility players. Right. You know, right. From the very beginning yep. onward. Yep. And But what do we need in terms of players right now? We clearly need evangelists. Yeah. Very good. And very good. by evangelists, I don't mean, you know, uh, someone who's out just standing on a street corner. There are dozens of roles in these various programs where, you know, whether it's facilitating the program, starting the program, you know, doing the registration for the program, you know, the the deacons can do. There's, there's, it's a really, truly a matter of deacons finding their niche. And for many newly ordained deacons, they spend an unusual amount of time figuring out, well, I'm ordained, now what am I what supposed do I do? to do? And I'm saying yeah. that there's, there's a role here, a huge role and a huge need. So um, this is, uh, I mean, this is important. I, it, I've seen this too with friends of mine who have become uh, permanent deacons. Uh, you know, they basically, utility players is a good way of putting it. Uh, they get, you know, if there's something that needs to be done, uh, have the deacon do it. Uh, whether it's visitation or whether it's, uh, sometimes it's preaching. Uh, if it's, it's visiting um, the, the widow, uh, you know, this is, you know, make sure the food pantry is working and operating. All of these things. Uh, so you're saying that evangelization uh, is at the is really definitive at the definitive uh, role for the deacon. Yes. Okay. All right. And I would say that when we look at the uh, uh, original seven deacons, uh, one is said to have died with Stephen uh, when he was martyred. But the uh, Eastern Church has a lot more uh, background on those five yep. deacons. Yep. And there it is primarily evangelization, catechesis, and exorcism. There's, there's very little written about what we would perceive as, as works of charity. Yeah. Distribution uh, of food. Yes. Yeah, things of that sort. Yeah. So for a society like ours that's in desperate need of evangelization, deacons can be trained to be uh, promoters of evangelization among the laity. This is not that the deacons do everything here, but the deacons should be the facilitators that see that active uh, discipleship and active evangelization are taking place. Hold it, okay? We'll be right back on another break. My guest is Deacon Stephen Hilker. And with me is Deacon Stephen Hilker. We've been taking a look at the role of deacons as apostles of the new evangelization. And the diaconate is one of those areas that has had enormous growth uh, since 1975. And uh, so here we have a body of trained men, and and frequently their wives are trained as well, uh, to do the work of evangelization. And too often, it seems, 
that deacons are not uh, really put forward as apostles of the new evangelization. They're often regarded as helpers or utility players or, uh, you know, the people who do things that um, the priest can't get around to. Um, the vision of the deacon that uh, Stephen is pointing out here is something that bears a good deal of thought. This, by the way, was your master's thesis at the Josephinum, right? Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So this was, uh, again, part of his own uh, training and instruction. Um, what about the role, uh, you know, a lot of what you're talking about presupposes the idea of encounter in evangelization, which is in John Paul II, it's in Benedict, it's in uh, Pope Francis, and that includes uh, in, in miracles, it includes healing, but it, it's experiential. Yes. It's, you know, particularly in a hostile environment, you know, where you're you're looking for, you know, true deep conversions, you know, those encounter experiences are, are absolutely essential. Uh, you know, the the pope after pope and synod after synod has, has pointed these things out. But there's an interesting uh, uh, collision of events here, uh, which is the development of the diaconate, the uh, development of, of or rediscovery of the healing gifts mm. in the church. That's interesting, yeah. And now the U.S. bishops have made evangelization, comma, forming a joyful band of missionary disciples, their highest priority, their highest strategic priority for the next five years. And with good reason. They need to. So this is a radical change for the, the bishops now to say, okay, we need to, to really move away from business as usual and, you know, move in the area of, of evangelization. Well, when you look at, at deacons and some of the history with them, uh, the healing gifts fit in in just an amazing way. They are vital to the new evangelization in our current cultural climate both healing gifts and encounter opportunities and fight the Holy Spirit to break into people's lives, lives that are immersed in a culture that's closed off to God. Um, places where argument doesn't work, right? I mean, correct. Yeah. Which yeah. it used to when there was a number of shared values about belief in God and Jesus right. Christ. Arguments could, could move a person along, but now we're working from really the ground up uh, in his recent book, uh, Biblical Foundations for the Role of Healing and Evangelization, Father Matthias Thalen from uh, uh, Brighton here, St. Pat's, describes how postmodern philosophy undermines and destabilizes the rational or theological understanding of reality. And it's displaced by the, uh, by the idea that reality is a social construct. Yeah. And truth and reality have no stable content, okay? In other words, reality and truth don't exist. Right. Claims of absolute truth begin to offend people's postmodern rights. It's even considered a form of violence. <laughs> yes. <laughs> if you believe there's such a thing as absolute truth, you're under suspicion as believing that you have the authority to force people to uh, submit to that absolute truth, which, of course, is not. We, we don't have that authority or that right. But uh, in this postmodern environment, 
to claim that there are unchanging truths that, uh, that we're all responsible to maintain, uh, that's seen, that is suspected as a, pre, um, a precursor to eventual violence. Uh, it's terrible. So, so in this environment, intellectual persuasion becomes much, much less effective yeah. where everybody is yeah. creating their own reality. Uh, instead, personal experience uh, carries much more uh, epistemic or you know experiential power. Okay, because what happens is an evangelization that appeals to the mind with objective truths about Jesus, but disregards the experiential, like deeds of healing and encounter, isn't as effective with a postmodern audience. Right. Uh, in contemporary experience in the church's life, you know, prayer for physical healing is one of the major reasons why, and this is what uh, uh, Father Thalen pointed out, why charismatic and Pentecostal churches are experiencing explosive growth yeah. all over the world. Yeah. And let's face it, you know, the the Catholic Church has a history of you know, healing that that goes back to the you know oh, to yeah. the training of the disciples and apostles. Yeah, yeah. The church is yeah. The church has never been about the uh, cessation of the you know the healing gifts or the miracles or prophecy. The Catholic Church has always maintained that all the gifts and operations of the Holy Spirit that uh, you see on the pages of the New Testament there those are still operative today. Uh, you know. Not everywhere, all at the same time, but they're they're available all throughout the church. So, given this task of evangelization, this huge task before the church, it's not acceptable to just set aside the distinctive role of the Holy Spirit's gifts in, uh, you know, in confirming, demonstrating, and expressing the gospel to to those who hear. It's a time to seriously consider the extent to which all those involved in evangelization should be open, and I, th- I think this is a low bar, open to praying, hopefully with the charismatic gifts of the Holy Spirit, encouraging direct encounter experiences. We ought to be praying with people to give their lives to the Lord, to uh, have the Holy Spirit touch them in various areas for, for emotional healing, for, uh, for actual physical healing. And, you know, it's possible to train people you know, how to have a greater expectation that God will simply work to confirm the word being preached. That's one of the themes in Acts of the Apostles. Expectation is very important here. Um, you, you, I, I don't know, we, many of us know this, of course, from our own experience with prayer, that when we pray, we, uh, we actually see prayers answered far more when in fact we actually expect that they're going to happen. We're on the lookout for them. We mm-hmm. see them. We're open to them happening. And it's the same thing here. Um, praying for people with an expectation that God's going to work in power to confirm the word that's being preached. Um, yeah, and this is, this is actually being seen in operation. Sure. This is not just theoretical. No, this is happening. There's yeah. there's more and more places where those charismatic gifts are functioning, and people are are changing because those those personal encounters with the person of Jesus Christ, or the healing power of the Holy Spirit, 
immediately become part of that postmodern person's experience. Yeah. It, so it becomes part of their belief system. The person uh, is in cult- may be enculturated in the postmodern mindset, but the impact follows a pattern. Uh, God has touched or healed me yep. or given me a deep abiding sense that he exists, mm-hmm. that he's real. Yep. Now what should what I do? What do you do? Yeah. yeah. Uh, Car- uh, Cardinal Avery Dulles uh, was sitting right where you are uh, now. And I. Uh, he, this was when he was finishing up his work. He was revising his history of apologetics. So I asked him, you know, what, what is the, what's the most compelling argument for the existence of God? And without missing a beat, he said, religious experience. Mm-hmm. You know, because w- once a person has had that kind of encounter, they know. They may not be able to explain everything, but they they can say, I know. I know him. Yeah. So with if, if you take all these deacons and you ask them to be go through additional training and evangelization and to make evangelization a major part of their ministry, then what happens is those deacons, especially in the U.S. with their wives, can impact the decline of the the church in America in a significant way. One of the things to to remember that's, that's hard for some people to grasp is there can be no new evangelization without a new Pentecost. Yeah. They go together. Yeah. They went yeah. together in Scripture. They go together now. Only the power of the Holy Spirit can change hearts and lives. Yeah, yeah. very good point. And, uh, and that's the biblical pattern, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. Um, you know, these, these kind of conversations get me very excited. Uh, and, and then I, I always go back to my years of experience here. And realize that uh, this sometimes this is difficult to get to actually experience in one in one's parish. You know, um, do you find, generally speaking, from your own experience, that priests are open to cooperation uh, with deacons along these lines? I think that it's it's taken a number of years for. the majority of priests to become more open, uh, especially with what we see with the the new priests coming out of Sacred Heart Seminary over the last you know fifteen years or so. There has been a marked uh, change in that. Virtually every seminarian there, as I understand it, has had the opportunity at least to to be prayed with for yeah. the release of the Holy yeah. Spirit in their lives. And so, what's coming out of um, sacred Heart are priests who are not careerists but who are truly focused on responding to the prompts of the Holy Spirit and open and understand the necessity of evangelization and are really on fire. Really yeah. on fire. The, the, the priests coming out of there are just... It is truly a new breed of priests, which is appropriate for a new you, culture. Uh, they, they, in the past, you might have thought a priest would be ordained, expecting that he'd kind of be, uh, you know, an active chaplain to a fairly stable Catholic community. Uh, priests who are being ordained now seem to know that they are being 
um, prophetic witnesses uh, to uh, an evil and adulterous generation. Uh, there's, a, there's a sense of uh, mission, a fire uh, that I see in a lot of younger priests. Absolutely. And they're a delight to work with. Yeah. They're an absolute delight. So deacons need to, to you know, work with their pastors to ensure that there are encounter opportunities available to all members of their parishes. Steve, we're out of time. Um, how can people uh, follow up on this? Uh, can we make the article available uh, at the website? Uh, Absolutely. Okay. Well, it's called Deacons as Apostles for the New Evangelization. It's at the Homiletical Pastoral Review uh, web, so it's hprweb.com, and we'll have it, of course, in the Crest Guest archives as well uh, later on this set. Well, probably about two hours from now. So, Steve, thank you so much. Oh, you're most welcome. Yeah, thank great you talking with you. Been a long time. Yes. This was good. Okay, God bless you. Deacon Stephen Hilker, Deacons as Apostles for the New Evangelization. I'm Al Cresta. Be back in just a moment. <laughs> 